Oh, I'm, I'm dazed and confused. I've been chasing this, this wee naked child over hill and over dale. Welcome to TARDIS Talk, the weekly podcast where we discuss all things Doctor Who. This week, a royal connection for the Jubilee celebrations as we go back to 2006 for Series 2's Tooth and Claw. And with me this week on his own, why Matt, what big teeth you have. But, uh... you will. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll stop there. Um, how are you doing? Not too bad, I get on. Not too bad, not too bad. Yeah, obviously I mentioned Jubilee, uh, so this is a uh, this week's uh, review is tenuously connected to the royal family in some way, shape, or form. Um, this is obviously isn't designed for like royalists out there because uh, it's a, an even split of people who are for or against. But it's obviously been quite a big sort of celebratory weekend in the UK this weekend, uh, celebrating seventy years of uh, uh, Liz Two. So um, so yeah, we thought let's do something Doctor Who royal related. We were originally going to do big finish jubilee um but I, I, I don't know about you but i didn't have the time for it that was kind of why i suggested we do do this shorter 45 minute sprint in uh tooth and claw um yeah it's been a surprisingly busy week hasn't it yeah this this would have been a perfect opportunity to have, have have done jubilee as well the big finish story because it's such a brilliant story it is fantastic it's of course what they based um uh 2005's Dalek episode on so we need to cover it at some point it's quite dark in places as well did you listen to it at all? No, because I mean, I literally was about to start when you originally messaged saying, "Oh, can we change the yeah, episode?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we'll have to do a review of that at some point. So, starting off, then uh, the production news this week. I mean, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't really been anything in the news, um, or at least in the in the kind of um, production world. Uh, they've been filming um, again, um, and I saw some things on Twitter. Uh, it was something to do with unit scenes, but apart from that, I didn't see anything. Have you Have you seen anything else? Going about. Nope, nothing's uh, come. Nothing's gone uh, past me. But and again, interestingly, my WhatsApp chat with you, with you and Cook, have both been really, really quiet. So clearly, nothing glaringly obvious has jumped yeah, out. Yeah. Well, like I said, I've been heaving, and Cook's been on leave. So, uh, so as he is now, he's actually on holiday. I think he's on his way back. He did just butt dial into the call, didn't he? But we don't know. If, we didn't know if he was joining or not. So, um, yeah. So it's obviously no news is good news, right? I guess in in a roundabout way. Well, I mean, Nothing to sort of sink your teeth into, but mm. I suppose it, it does still lead us to sort of the air of anticipation. I suppose we'll yeah. just have to wait and see what fills this space. But yeah, very, very I'm true. optimistic. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I, one of the key things that I'm looking forward to is finding out sort of what is going to happen with the 60th year. You know, when are we going to get our first taste of it and stuff like that? The the closer we get to the Santanary special, the less excited I'm getting about it. I know that sounds really shallow, but I'm just more focused right now on getting to. To uh, RTD2 and kind of focusing on that era and sort of getting sort yeah, of yeah, but this also this is also very you. You do tend to you do tend to get overexcited Straight about in with the character assassination it, there. Well, yeah, you know I love you, but you do get overexcited about something and then almost disappointed <laughs> when you're like, you know, you've had your burst. It's lasted for a week. Like, yeah, I've moved on. Yeah, well, there we go. What can I say? I mean, I'm even. I think. I think to be honest with you, I'm just bracing myself because unfortunately, the um, the, the dice has been cast, and as I've been saying, I'm, I'm planning on being. Well, I'm not planning on, but I'm going to be away during the centenary special. Uh, as it turns out, I'm not going to be able to watch it when it airs now because I think we're going to be in between locations, which is really going to suck. So um, yeah, that's, that's... I was thinking you're a committed fan. Yeah, I know. Maybe maybe I'll watch it. Maybe who, I'll watch it from. Who some are sort these of... people you're going on holiday with? <laughs> I'll, I'll watch it from the Golden Gate Bridge. There you go. <laughs> 
Excellent. <laughs> I've mentioned I'm going to San Francisco, it. by the way. <laughs> oh, you really have now. Once or twice. Um, I look forward to the windy voice notes you're going to send over. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So, so yeah, so basically um, this week we decided to do something royal. We decided on Tooth and Claw. It's been ages since I've seen it, and it's a treat. Uh, it's, I, I really enjoyed it. That's, that's kind of one way I... I could put it it's um, it's nice to go back to something revisit it and not really find any criticism for it um, which I think is rare coming from me anyway do you want me to give my my synopsis my, oh yeah my go on it's not so space werewolf enlists the help of bald kung fu kung fu monks in a bid to infect the royal family and take over mankind yeah is that now that Perfect, brilliant. That's a good okay. blurb, but bold, I do have to ask is the first bold, thing you mentioned, and it's, some, it's something that I made a note of as well, which is why are they bold kung fu monks? <laughs> I don't know, but it's so cool. I remember watching <laughs> like, this the first was, time it happened, and it was like, wow. It was, yeah, but it was super unexpected. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, they yeah. could have gone for any, you know, they came in with sort of their monk outfits, and, you know, they talk about being from uh, from the monastery over the way and all yeah, sorts yeah. of things as well. And then suddenly, I mean, they're monks. Let's, let's face <laughs> Not it. Not monks, sorry, they're ninjas almost. Well, the, well that's exactly it. The, 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 also, like that, you just mentioned the fact, why are they bald? The, obviously, you associate bald monks in red gowns and sort of like, you know, kung fu with not necessarily even just the kung fu, but specifically the, the, the you know, baldness and, and, the, and the, the robes and stuff with Tibetan monks, not with what you would predict to be in 19th century Scotland, Benedictine monks, because that's probably who it's going to be. I can't imagine there being a Tibetan monastery anywhere near uh, Torchwood House in Scotland in uh, in the 1800s. Though maybe I could be I could be completely talking shit, but yeah, I, I don't know. That, that was a great, very, very cool choice, though. Um, I really, well, really loved it. Well, yeah, sort of and, you know, and for the cold open as well, just talking oh, about it, you know, it does a wow. really good job of adding that air of mystery, you know. Yeah. You know, it's all very, like you said, um, uh, it's all very acrobatics. It's all very... Uh, yeah, it's a very fu, impossible. It? Yeah. I can't, that's the one I thought. Thank you, Kung Fu. Yeah. It's a very Kung Fu-like scene. Yeah, but... Yeah. None of that's ever seen again. No, I know. You get the impression <laughs> that their health insurance would only allow them to do a certain amount of stunts on on well, location. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's just a bit where it's like they're they're brought in, they do this really interesting scene, and then none of that is relevant ever again for the rest I, of the story. I could have sworn those blokes are from the BBC Idents of the time as well, because the the Idents used to have kind of those people tumbling down those red um, they were like, like those red drapes, and they used to kind of like those those. Uh, men and women that used to sort of tumble down these red drapes and do these acrobatics in the air and I could swear there was like an equivalent version of that with some kung fu ball blokes who I'm sure were these people I'm positive they were um, although that may just be the, like the, the uh, Mandela effect I don't know um, yeah, I'm not really comfortable enough to Google kung fu ball blokes I'm sure I get quite a lot of supplies <laughs> yeah, on Google bollocks as if that's not in your internet history already um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so you're right the cold open was fantastic I think the cinematography of that opening sort of couple of first couple of minutes is brilliant as well because mm. you can tell i don't know who filmed this uh, who directed this episode but you can very much tell that they wanted to do like um uh, uh, like a pastiche um play homage to uh, kung fu films of like the 70s and sort of maybe 60s and 70s um with the camera angles and the the quick close-ups and stuff like that um that's one of the things actually just while i mention it now one of the things i'm going to keep harking back to is um pastiche and homage because there's a lot of it in this in this episode to different genres and stuff like that um so so yeah i think the cold open's really strong there is one other thing about the cold open though which did with with the power of hindsight after watching it made me sort of scratch my head which is they obviously they bring they bring the the crate down don't they with the with the I don't think oh, the werewolf's yeah. actually named, is he? We'll just have to call him the werewolf. The werewolf, yeah, he doesn't have a name. Yeah, yet. 
Um, but obviously he's not transformed at this point because it's middle of the day and they're just yep. taking over the house. But then they pull the tarp off and everybody starts screaming. Yeah. So you have to ask the question, were they just like, oh, a poor person in the crate? Or is there something else <laughs> I, I was missing? <laughs> I always think the only thing I can assume is he's got black eyes. That's the only thing I can assume. Because you were never seen oh, yeah, with normal but... eyes beforehand, but otherwise there is well, a slight yeah, overreaction. It but it implies later on when we come back to that scene when Rosa trapped down there as well that actually there was something more sinister going on because then the mm. rest of the staff are talking about how the fact that if they move they'll be devoured whole yeah, and it's yeah. just a guy in a crate and yeah. as far as we can tell he's been there less than 24 hours so. maybe maybe he was maybe he was mooning them um okay happy pun <laughs> maybe when they like lifted the tarpaulin he's bent over uh showing them the full crown jewels and that's why they all scream horribly you never Possibly. know that would have been it's a very just... interesting uh <laughs> end to the cold open mm, i don't know i don't know I think I think just like as a, as a as an opening though, it's it's you're right. You hit nail on the head. The mystery is strong with this one because you just wonder what the hell is going on here. And it, it I think it, this story's pace is perfect as well. Um, specifically in this bit because what it does is it goes through a sweep of, you know, here's the threat. Here is something uh, ambiguous and and mysterious that people are screaming at, and. Um, it, it, it this is the setup basically and it kind of manages to do that in a very clever way some cold opens are just basically like a person gets killed and then the sting kicks in or you know something spooky happens or the TARDIS arrives and then something funny happens this does quite a good job of setting up this mystery I think really well it's it's also really good at doing the thing the opposite of what I normally complain about so I often complain about being given loads of exposition and nobody actually showing me anything yeah, yeah, yeah. actually in the first couple of scenes we get established sort of the who the who the the actual sort of the servants and the the, the people the staff like we that live in the house yeah, yeah, yeah. the monks they come in with that very again ambiguous so idea actually, we're just going to take it yeah, yeah they've got clearly they've got some skill as well and they've got a plan behind it and we don't get this huge um trumpets and bellows and five minute expedition about who the lord of the manor is either mm. he literally gets two minutes on screen turns around the door open to get smacked in the face with a stick yeah, yeah and that's yeah, it yeah. and it's very good at going these are the important players here's yep. the episode yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and, and and they manage to do that in what two minutes two three minutes something mm-hmm. like that yeah it's brilliantly done brilliantly done so the story in itself then i mean i did my um succinct recap of it but it's basically about uh this alien life form who's crashed to earth and for hundreds of years it's been um it's a parasite it passes through um uh generations of hosts of individuals and it wants to take over the earth and the way that it can take over the earth is by taking over the um head of the most powerful uh imperial body the most powerful um uh, you know empire on earth the british empire so I don't know what the is my understanding of, of the concept of him basically wanting to get to the queen. Is he wanting to kill Victoria and then basically my grandma? Or what, you know what, what what wonderful clothes you're wearing or whatever. <laughs> basically, does he want to kind of like uh, infect Victoria? At, uh, yeah, well, he, sort of... he, he talks about migrating to her, so I, I, mm. I'm under the impression of you Possession. know. The, yeah, of all the generations, it's the same entity that enters throughout the blood. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's one life form, isn't it? Um, exactly. But it retains around. again all that memory, all that knowledge, hence the whole bit about um, uh, steam and uh, coal, steam and coal powered missiles and all that as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I can only assume that yeah, it's the whole 
it's trying it's trying to make sure that it moves moves into that crab bloodline because I mean, yeah. as they allude to towards the end of the episode as well uh, then it can just more be like that from host to host yeah 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 so, so that is the case and so it basically wants to kind of take because i can never quite work out whether or not it means it physically wants to manifest inside victoria at this point or if it wants to infect her so it, it's then passed through the bloodline um it, it that's slightly ambiguous I, I think that is anyway i think it's slightly ambiguous as to what what the kind of end goal is with that but yeah basically this 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 parasite which has crashed to earth hundreds of years before um wants to take over and the doctor and rose just by happenstance land a uh, hundred years oh, too early before we even get to the bit where they land though i want to talk about that tardis scene because a few episodes oh, yeah. ago i talked loudly about the fact of how i miss tardis flight scenes and uh-huh. it being thrown around and you yeah. know actually being able to run around and flick controls and this is a great opener for the for you know for the doctor for rose yeah. and they come into an episode actually where they are being flung around by the tardis you know they end up falling over and having to laugh about it but yeah, yeah. there's a big old scene actually about flying this thing and actually yeah. i just don't feel like we get any of that anymore and i really no, want to see more of that no you're right you definitely don't know i mean we see i think the last time we ever saw anything really like that was was in smith's era not even capaldi kind of really hadn't in fact capaldi basically drove it with a couple of you know the flicks of a couple of switches um he never really seemed to have to work his ass off to kind of like run around it perhaps and i can name i can name a couple of episodes where smith um did it in the toyota desktop but actually i think the last time we saw it consistently was probably back in smith's first desktop yeah, the the coral, not coral, the um, uh, copper one. Copper, thank you. Yeah, 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 it's the copper theme. So maybe, maybe I, I, I don't. I, you're right. I love seeing kind of like, especially when um, tennis just hammering the TARDIS with that with that mallet um, to the sound of uh, Ian Jury and the Blockheads. You know, hit me with your rhythm stick, and he's just pounding the shit out of the console with this with this mallet. Which yeah, again, there's a bit darker now. We now sentient the TARDIS <laughs> actually is. However, yeah. it's nice again to see some sort of interaction. It's yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. its own, it's its own state and its own presence as opposed to just being the outside that appears and takes yes. someone somewhere i do i do like the use of that particular piece of music in that scene as well because it's obviously kind of like it's a little bit of subtle misdirection in that the doctor is intending to take rose to um see a concert in the 70s and ends up we end up kind of being well out of era of that but what they're doing is they're basically playing some already at the point of 2006 some already retro music and then when they arrive, they're still the way to, the way earlier than they anticipated anyway. I just like the clever misdirection with that. And then playing um, "Hit Me with Your Rhythm Stick" as the, as the TARDIS is just spinning through the vortex. I absolutely love that shot. I think it's brilliant. I love I love when you get shots of the TARDIS in the vortex. It happened in the TV movie as well, um, where and where you basically see the TARDIS flying through the vortex and you can hear music coming out of it. I just think that's fantastic. There's something mm-hmm. quite I don't know. Well, it, it makes it feel, and I know we, the, you know, the doctor himself makes comparison again, but it makes it feel more like a car, as in a, a car actually blaring down the motorway yeah, doing something. Yeah, exactly it, that. It, it makes it feel travelled and used, not just like a spaceship flying through space. You know, yeah, it's yeah, got yeah. its own. It, it feels much more personable than say, yeah, exactly, yes. than say the Starship Enterprise, which is you know, it's iconic, it's huge, people recognise it, Does it, but it doesn't have the character. I know in um, the Almost People and the Rebel Flesh, the uh, Amy and Rory are playing Muse, blasting Muse out while they're playing darts, but I can't remember if we get an outside shot of the TARDIS in that in that moment. I know that it's flying through mm. the vortex, but I can't remember if you see the outside no, I don't of the think we do, I think because it's all a bit emotional, isn't it? Because the Doctor's just got his death um, date on the screen. <laughs> That's right, he's just, he's just properly... Um, sort of glowering at the screen across the room being a mood yeah, yeah that's right um, 
yeah, before we go off on tangent then. So, <laughs> so yeah, so basically, obviously, they arrive and um, they, using great uh, device mechanics like the, the psychic paper, they're able to um, sort of, you know, insert themselves into the uh, into Queen Victoria's consort and travel with her. Well, um, David Tennant gets to use his Scottish accent. And he gets to use his Scottish accent, which is, yeah, brilliant use of that and a fantastic little uh, sort of uh, bit of comedy skitting between him and him and Rose. Um, so, excuse me, so that's the setup essentially. And then we basically get to the place and there's all this talk about myth and stuff like that. And they very quickly realise something's wrong. And then before you know it, the werewolf comes alive and the action kicks off. So it's basically like mystery, mystery, enigma, enigma, action, 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 action all the way to the end and I think that pacing yeah. is just absolutely brilliant it really helps drive the story there's no there's maybe a lull but I don't think it's a lull because it's not as if there's been any significant action at the start so it feels like a, like a sufficient build up if that makes sense I don't feel yeah, like we've no, I agree. a big it's, hit of anything it, well yeah and I think it, do, it does quite a nice job of building up anticipation for the actual the werewolf transformation oh, um, yeah. you know with the whole talking about monsters and and myths and all the you know the things they allude to the first time we see the the actual light prism and all those kind of things where they're discussing sort of the the mysteries of sort of the, the local countryside etc yeah, and yeah. it constantly builds up that anticipation you know right you know even with um the guards being drugged and rose and the maid being kidnapped it constantly builds us up to that point until the doctor, you know, when he's around the dining table at that point, then realizes, oh, we're in a trap. Yeah, 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 and that's that's brilliant. I, I kind of like that moment, that sudden look of desperation on his face, because up until that point, he just thinks they're having a bit of a lark, which is a yeah. theme that is so. Without kind of going on to take, because we we'll talk about this in a bit, but the, the the theme of this one is kind of setting up the carefree attitude of the doctor and Rose um, to the point where it kind of like becomes their downfall. That's basically what the what the the pitches behind this one is kind of showing them to be then then you know they need to take things a bit more seriously um because of course it gives birth yeah. to the very notion of torchwood anyway which is a very significant point in whovian history um at least new whovian history or just whovian history in general i suppose um, Wait, whole- i mean this episode is up and before now it was just a word that we'd just started to hear every once in a while yeah. torchwood yeah. torchwood torchwood mm-hmm. this gives us a little bit of context about it and what's quite nice is we hear about it this is what episode two in the season yes we hear about this now and the built and you know and the establishment of the torchwood institute really really early yeah but then we don't really get anything else that's that's meaty until the end of the season yeah i know i was just thinking about that because this is the arc isn't it for this season but i don't mm. think it's certainly not in school reunion it's definitely there is some reference well, it, to it It comes up in all of them it comes up in pretty much every single episode but if we don't get actually any any law you know any establishment of what torture means it from after this episode till the finale it's not it's not as on the nose as a crack in the wall either um it's it's yeah. very subtle from what it's so subtle i can't remember half of them to be honest i do vaguely remember some bits and bobs from uh, the same pit and stuff i just want to i've just kind of scanning over my notes there's one thing i do super quickly want to mention and that's the brilliant reference the doctor using one of his former companions names as an alias yeah uh, dr james mccrimmon i just think that's a brilliant brilliant little uh use of um i agree and it's so nice as well that it you know because it's a lot of the time it's john smith is when we go to but there was clearly yeah. an opportunity there so yeah. he just went with it i'm yeah, in yeah. scotland what's a scottish name i know and he plucks that out exactly yeah i, I think that's quite a nice little nod and yeah. also the reference to the edinburgh university where he got his doctorate which is according to the second doctor of, of another fact that happened which is brilliant sorry you're going to say something 
Oh, yeah, so the only other bit I was going to mention, actually, um, and I will come on sort of the, the transformation scene as well, because that's a really important scene to talk about. But there's a mm-hmm. line of dialogue between Rose and the Doctor where he talks about the fact there's something of the wolf about her, obviously from what we've just seen with Bad Wolf. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, that, yeah. not only is that brilliant, but then it's the after line, which I didn't really, I don't think I appreciated as much from the first time around watching it. But the mm-hmm. line where he talks about, um, you burnt like the sun, but all I required was the moon, is yeah. a really nice comparison, again, between what we're going to see next, but actually what rose went through as the bad wolf oh so you mean yes yeah yeah, yeah when he says you burn like the sun burning yeah, up yeah, yeah, all the yeah, sorts yeah. of pressures yes. under no, I noticed a really that. Yeah, nice yeah. comparison yeah yeah i thought that was a brilliant bit of dialogue so this is between the werewolf kid and rose when they're in the cellar mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's perfect you, and it's it's a really nice nod to a you know just not just abandoning what we've gone through with yeah. rose anyway but actually reading us on to say almost that bit's done now this is the future plot yeah very much so this uh, this episode has got a mass just just moving on from from that point this this episode has got a gigantic kill count there's quite a lot of people that die in this episode in quite horrific ways as well you know um with the werewolf just basically plowing its way through central characters left right and center uh it takes that that basically like like that gamekeeper first then it takes um victoria's uh kind of captain then it takes uh robert whatever his name is robert torchwood or whatever his name is the the, the owner of the house um I mean, you forgot as well with the gamekeeper all of the other male members of the staff at the manor Yes, so, and yeah, yeah, all of them. that's true. Yeah, it basically just rips through them all, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, it, there is quite a high body count, and I think like the gore level in this particular story. There's a particular moment that I really enjoy, or really kind of like I found quite gripping when I watched it, which was when Rose is in the corridor and she's just locked in fear, watching yeah. the captain get ripped apart, and you can hear these kind of like really horrific, wet, squelching, ripping sounds, like the audio um, design in this particular, the, the foley work in this particular story is fantastic. You know, it does a really good job, the snarls, the growls, mm-hmm. the ripping sound, especially the transformation, the cracking of bone and stuff like that. It's done so well. It's really, oh, I mean, really gory. I mean, we both alluded to a couple of times, so I think it's, it's probably worth talking about that transformation scene, yeah. because yeah. despite the fact it's, it is a little dated, I think it's held up pretty well. I think it's fantastic. I still stand and think it's one of the best visual effects that New Who has had, considering it's they, not they as could have HD. Gone for well, yeah, exactly. And they could have gone for it's a blur or it's a blinding light. You know, they could have really copped out, but they went for a proper, trans- like you said, yeah. bone crunching, limbs popping out transformation. Yep. yep, yep, yep. And I love it. I loved watching the whole thing. Yeah, I remember watching it at the time and just thinking, this is really, really dark for Doctor Who. Because I, how old, I don't know how old it would have been. It would have been in my early 20s when this aired. And I. I remember watching it and thinking, Jesus, this is dark. I don't know what kids... But it would have been really insightful to have Cook's uh, impression of this because if he'd watched it when it aired, it would have been interesting. But yeah, this must have scared kids because I, I wouldn't say I found it scary, but it's got the it's got the, the belts and braces of being, you know, on par with some of the great horror transformations like The Howling and American Werewolf in London, um, Dog Soldiers. It's quite dark and, and, and graphic the way it transforms. Um I don't think it. Well, I don't. Yeah. Go on. And then you know, not just the transformation, but you know, the the ripping out of the cage. You know, it, the bit right up to the bit where we get that first sort of massacre scene. You know, mm. it's plowing through doors. It's yeah. literally lunging down hallways. You know, it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. we're dealing with our usual thing of like, for example, ha ha, look, Dalek can't go upstairs and all yeah, that yeah, type yeah. of thing that we've dealt with in the past. This thing is mean. It's menacing. It's that's it. 
done a horrible transformation yeah and it's running at you it's got physique as well it 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 mm. towers it looms you know it, it's the age-old trope that i mean when the doc i think i think when when the doctor kind of bursts into the cellar and sees it for the first time he goes oh that is beautiful I think he's saying that as a meta statement because <laughs> the the work I must I think it would have been the mill at this point the work the mill put into everything on that werewolf the fur you know uh, the eyes I think I think when you do CG work and creature work a lot of the the uh, kind of outcome of whether or not you're going to find it believable is on the eyes because they say there's that thing about the uncanny valley don't they so if something's realistic but it's got dodgy looking eyes you can root it out immediately and it just breaks the immersion and it makes it feel like it's it's not right but we see quite a lot of close-ups of the of the wolf in this episode you know when it's sniffing the sniffing the wall its faces up against the door stuff like that mm-hmm. and it's 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 eyes it's fur it's all really kind of really good good cg work um well yeah and i think you know what they do which is quite nice about <laughs> some of those shots where it's sort of you get the entire thing on screen yeah yeah a lot of it is quite is moving quick clips and actually you know it does add to sort of the speed and the fact that it's kind of like always in the corner of your eye as opposed to being directly in front of you yeah it it's really good for the again for the building of the atmosphere but like you said there's also a couple of key scenes i think one of the good ones to call out there is when they are on the opposite sides of the door mm. where actually we're just getting the headshot of lack of a better phrase and actually they really show off what they've done and yeah, actually definitely. you get that time just to get it it doesn't linger on screen for the longest of time but it lingers a lot longer than any of the other shots we've had of it and you get to just suddenly go damn you know you've done a great job there yeah 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 hugely i think i think part of that as well is down to the fact that it is essentially like um it's it's a horror trope and it's a horror story and they had to make it look kind of they they do the same thing with the um the beast in the satan pit you know Mm -hmm. that looks really good that looks really really good so obviously season one did really well and they must have been like had their their budget significantly upped for season two and i think this is where a lot of the money goes because we don't really get that much cg in later stories um the krillotane i think because we've already done school reunion as part of tardis talk haven't we and Mm. i think we said then there are moments where the krillotane don't look bad but there are moments when they just look a bit a bit shoddy around the edges so and this is probably a good comparison actually because the krillotane look their best when they're stood still yeah and actually when they're diving down hallways and kind of swarming they kind of look a bit naff yeah, yeah. that's the bit where they really don't feel like they fit properly whereas actually again this is where the, where we got a really nice comparison because they're doing very similar actions you know throwing themselves down hallways there's a bit of flying involved but you get my point it's all yeah, very yeah. much kind of they're being chased by these things and actually given the time to produce one thing brilliantly or have a swarm of something down a hallway you can see actually which one they put a bit more time into yes. might be the right way of phrasing it yeah yeah but i suppose it's you know i'm not an expert in the field but i suppose it's easier when you're trying to, to create one thing as opposed to a swarm of them yeah well i, I would i would assume so i also would assume it's down to the amount of budget they assign to each episode i've got no idea because yeah. i've never actually looked into it in a massive but, amount of detail but, but i think you've got later episodes like age of steel and rise of the cybermen the girl in the fireplace and stuff which are more practical effect heavy than than cg yeah. and i think they could probably allocate a bit more budget to stories like this where they needed to but the bit I was going to add as well is because it's a, a point which I've uh, alluded to there, which I'll carry on for, for a little bit here, is actually the bit that we 
you talk about this being a really, really good um, a horror on, for lack of a better phrase, mm. and I completely agree with you. And actually, one of the things that's really important about this here is this is a really good example of one big major threat has much more of a horror feel to me than a swarm of something you have to deal with. You've just said something perfect there because that ties in with what I was going to say it pays reference to. And I think there's quite a lot of shots and, and angles that they film that plays off this. It's alien, but with a werewolf. Yeah. That's what this episode is. That's exactly the point. I mean, if we take the Alien comparison, Alien is Mm -hmm. a fantastic film. Aliens, second one, is a great film, but it's always compared to the first one. And again, when you're having to deal with one insidious threat, it always feels much more threatening to me than the swarm of nameless enemies exactly i mean even even down to the reference i the reason why i'm so adamant that they, they're inspired by um the alien as the concept in this as you know modeling the the behaviors and the threat around the alien around the xenomorph um it the scene with the game uh gamekeeper when he stood in the hall uh, yeah. and he says you know we've taken them all off blah 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 and then and then the the arms come down and grab him by the head and pull him up into the ceiling that is yeah. literally lifted out of alien 3 with blind brian glover the um the prisoner in the prison canteen in alien 3 when the when the xenomorph just reaches out and grabs him by the head and pulls him up into the rafters um it's like for like it it would surprise me completely if it turns out that it's not inspired by alien in any way i'm convinced it is just just everything to do with that monster i think it's 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 definitely um especially around like the way that like you mentioned before the 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 behavioral side of the of the werewolf as well and the way it stalks and some of the camera angles where you see it off at the end of the corridor and it's kind of like the way it stands and it's posed and whatnot i think it's very kind of reminiscent of it um I agree. Yeah. It's and again, it's probably because of the way they designed it, but it it's very much a a creature that's that you say it's either hunched over, or it's on all fours, mm. and actually because it's got that slightly more, for lack of a better phrase, alien positioning. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It does give off that element again of of it being of it being something that yeah we know can move quickly but it likes to prowl yeah it does like to prowl yes it's also very animalistic we don't actually get a species name for it for it do we the doctor kind of says oh it's a, it's this species this lupine waveform yeah. blah 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 thing um but we don't actually know anything about it we don't know where it's from i can't remember does the doctor allude to it being from a warfaring race or is it just or is that kind of implied because the creature says you know you know, I, I I want war and industry. Uh, no, it doesn't. We're not quite sure where it comes from. He gets it because of the conversation he has with Rose. With when Rose has the conversation with the werewolf, doesn't it about the fact that she wants that? Yeah, it wants the throne and all sorts of things. I like that as well, though, because I quite like it when the Doctor goes up against an enemy he's never really had any dealings with. Um, his yeah. reaction to it in this instance kind of annoys me a little bit because it's, but that's intentional. Uh, that's all about the Doctor and Rose's kind of complacency towards the situations and kind of like their constant dumbfounded wonder despite the massacring that's happening around them. I mean, let, we'll talk about the characters at the moment anyway so let's let's just quickly talk about about some of the main characters this one so, so the doctor and rose um yeah i i think as i've said this this sort of establishes their their arc for season two which is they keep going into these situations where there's bloodshed around them and they're still making really fucking inappropriate jokes i mean i hate i don't like rose but i really hate her in this episode i really can't stand her in this episode because you know all those times she's trying to crack jokes sort of you know i am not amused i I bet you know all right it was funny the first time but then she repeatedly does it and you just think jesus girl you you know you've been given all the time and space to go and explore and all you're doing is turning it into a wisecrack and it just feels like such an annoying trait of hers and it it annoys me even more that the doctor is encouraging her 
Well, yeah, it, it didn't come across as annoying to me. That felt just very reminiscent of 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 Ten and Rose, and this is kind of like you said, the stamp that they kind of put onto things. Um, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd say interestingly, it's both of them. They both act mm. slightly out of sorts this episode. However, there's you're right. You're absolutely right. Like I, I can imagine Rose asking the question repeatedly of, um, you know, trying to get a queen to say we are not amused and all That's that. So, yeah, I can yeah. see that. That's very on character for her. In, her timing. She's normally a little bit more empathetic than she is in this episode. Her <laughs> yeah. timing on, on yeah. some of them is really poor, but. Some of the things the Doctor does this episode are also a bit weird and wacky and out there. He doesn't try to to trap or negotiate with the enemy, you know, not even once to the point where he runs away, which is very much not on theme for him. And and again, even towards the end as well, when he's talking to, um uh, again, his name's escaped me, but Lord of the Manor, mm-hmm. um, and he's just like, he's talking about sacrificing himself, and he just allows it, doesn't try and convince him otherwise. He's like, yeah, right, good man, close the doors. I get the impression, though, that's more, that, uh, this, this younger version of the Doctor is not as war, war weary, if that's the right way of putting it. He's not, he's not kind of like being through the mill. I, I basically, this is pre Doomsday. 10 and pre doomsday 10 is very different to post doomsday 10 it is but there's still this um there's still that bit though where it's still you know the doctor will go on you know even before the doomsday episode later on the season mm. he'll still go on and do what he can to contain and protect and you know cherish life and that's what we expect from the doctor but in this one he's just like oh you're gonna sacrifice yourself then all right thanks <laughs> i was like that's a bit oh, fucking cold well look at least he didn't tell a former can- cancer patient that he's not interested yeah, and then great. shuffles away awkwardly um, <laughs> one day i was gonna add a uh, uh, about that with the doctor you sort of talk about the fact he's not gone through the mill there's that beautiful scene with um in victoria when they're sitting down having dinner talking about the fact that they both miss people terribly yeah yeah that's true and yeah. there is a beautiful moment where um, again the doctor's just staring off into the distance and he's clearly having a moment inside his head mm. but yeah. that's you know as we said before david tends um the unquestioned master of doing that, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah, very much so. And, and it's hard to think because I haven't seen uh, New Earth. God blimey. <laughs> years. Years and years and years and years and years. Long, long time. So I can't quite remember the cut of his characterization in New Earth. And of course, this follows it directly. So uh, it's hard for me to kind of like say whether this is, you know, budding 10 or if it's 10 in his series 2 full swing by this point because he feels very established by school reunion from what I remember he feels um, like that's well, he feels the very established by now because don't forget in, well he does yeah you're right but in 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 school reunion he has that um, fantastic confrontation with uh, Headmaster Finch um, in the swimming pool and yes. kind of like the dark side of him comes across in that one I don't recall yeah, but, seeing but, that in New, New Earth, and I but, don't recall seeing that here. that's a great example, though. We talk about the fact of, you know, um, the Doctor's very much about sort of giving people that warning or that second chance, mm. and um, he doesn't try at all here. <laughs> no, he doesn't really. No, he is very much kind of... Uh, I don't know. It, it's He's not like that in New Earth either, though, is he? Well, in New Earth, he, he, in New Earth, he kind of is, isn't he? Because I mean, he he does still try to go out and he tries to save um, uh, the patients, the cat nurses, the cloned patients as well. Tell you what, know, right, the only thing that I remember about New Earth is him swanning around in a lift with loads of water and screaming at the top of his voice. That's all I remember. That's literally <laughs> right, all I remember. The end, <laughs> yeah, basically, and uh, and Cassandra's really annoying. Um, 
half life whatever it is clone lab thing okay i don't remember much about that story at all clearly not one you write highly then we'll come back to that episode or good, no. sure. good god no yeah no that one's um interesting um i, I don't know it's, it's i don't like 10 and rose as a combo as i've said before i don't quite know if i like 10 at the moment in in I, I certainly liked him when i was watching it but on reflection watching back i don't i find him quite jarring um yeah, I don't know. I, I just kind of like whenever he was in a scene and him and Rose were having their bants, I just wanted to fucking shake them and say, show a bit more respect, you cretins. <laughs> Not specifically because it's Queen Victoria, but just because they've got the power of time and space at their fingertips well, and they're making well, bets yeah, for think- a tenor to try and get someone of historical importance to say something fucking stupid. Well, yeah, but I think that, like you said, it sort of it leads on to the nuances later on in the season about their about sort of their I think it's described isn't it as their happy-go-lucky lifestyle mm. um, but actually again credit to um, and her name's escaped me the actress that plays uh, Pauline Collins uh, Queen, yeah mm. pardon Pauline Collins yeah exactly because she does a great job again of <laughs> she interrupts them plenty of times to explain actually this is not acceptable yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay let's move on to Queen Victoria then so so Queen Victoria, Pauline Collins, very famous British actress, um, she does an absolutely amazing job of portraying the characterisation of, of Queen Brilliant. Victoria. You know, she's quite, she's got a, this this cheeky, playful side to her, but she also doesn't take shit. She's very much kind of like, you know, she will call people out as she sees fit. Um, and I think she's also got the most believable responses to a situation in any Doctor Who story ever. You know she's kind of strong and stoic to start off with and then she realises that people are getting diced apart by a nine foot wolf man and she just loses her shit and kind of goes to jelly and and follows the doctor's instructions and I I think that's really believable it's quite nice as well that she she's very much aware you know you're right she does see it she does have a bit where she well, wouldn't say say goes to jelly that's probably a yeah, bit yeah because she's quite firm afterwards isn't she but it's, i think that's I think, shock though isn't it well, yeah but but she has that's exactly it she does have her moment of shock mm. but then she very much accepts the reality and actually it's nice to see it's yeah okay you know she's kind of the you know the wolf's after her and that's kind of the protect the npc kind of vibe that the episode kind of goes for um <laughs> we're, we're calling victorian npc yeah or... well yeah 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 i'm sure that's gonna upset somebody somewhere but you know it's too late now um, <laughs> and actually it's it's nice to it's nice to see that she is you know she still has all the faculties about her actually you know she she doesn't hesitate she shoots the the uh, the head monk at the very beginning dead mm. um yeah she does yeah know, the, they flew you know they do have the conversations actually about putting the doctor and rose in their place because they are completely and utterly out of their minds at some point you know mm-hmm. yeah. even towards the end again where she's very much a case of okay i've rewarded you because you helped me now leave and don't come back <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much um and it, it's it's victor queen victoria was always known for being kind of like very uh miserable is probably like a really laissez-faire way of putting it but she's she's very she was known for being a bit of a grump and i think that that is a mechanism which plays very well in this particular story because it allows her to apply um that level of of you know uh playfulness with the strict grumpiness as well at the same time i i knight you sir doctor of tardis now get the 
hell out of my empire sort of thing yeah i think that works really well um i just really like the characterization i think i think she's done brilliantly in this uh you know um i agree everything down from her not taking rose and the doctor's shit to the way she accepts the situation um to the fact you, you there's a really key scene actually and it's a, it's a very important scene to address because i think it, it really really kind of it kind of demonstrates the uncertain quality of victoria's character which is the one you mentioned where she takes on the head monk um she shoots him mm. um we I don't know historically if it's ever been alluded to whether Victoria had to defend herself with a gun. Um, I've got no idea. There's probably people listening who are avid historians and are screaming right now. Yeah, yeah, it happened, it happened. Or no, 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 she'd never do that. But I can kind of see that happening. Do you know what I mean? I can see the Queen having to protect herself. And she's not a trained combatant, you know. Um, She's not like the Doctor or Rose who kind of experiences this thing all the time. And she's just had to shoot a man in cold blood. Uh, and when she's asked about it, she has to lie about it, doesn't yeah. she? And say, you know... Immediately. That obviously kind of goes to show that she's a very, very private individual as well. Um, yeah, but I don't know, because I know that, like, for example, members of the royal family, they're trained in sort of kidnapping scenarios and escapism and all that type of thing, because in case situations like that happen. So I don't think it's too... I don't think it's too far to stretch the mind to idea if we jump back 100 years that, A, like I said, she's been... Uh, in the episode she does mention about the fact that she had six attempts on her life already hasn't that she? was true yeah that so, was true yeah so the idea that she is prepared and armed i i didn't find that hard to believe no no likewise and yeah. not just prepared and armed but willing she's not actually willing but she did in fact pull the trigger yeah sort of push to a limit so i really like the idea of that I, I i do like the idea of that. i think it's played out very well so obviously again we chose this particular episode because it's jubilee weekend and there are plenty of occasions where the doctor has met royals um, in who now the two are intrinsically british obviously uh you know the, the, the royal family throughout the ages are kind of like a core sort of part of british culture and identity doctor who is also kind of like a strong part of british culture and identity and the two have crossed paths now it's, it's nice to see when it does happen um we've got so the ones that you probably have seen yourself anyway obviously uh is going to be this one so meeting queen victoria um voyage of the damned when we get to see liz 2 very briefly in a very cringy scene that i feel like could have been cut but it was just put in there you know <laughs> cringely um i can't imagine the queen coming out in a rollers and a, and a and a dressing gown thanking the doctor but there we go um well, liz- i can imagine i can imagine the queen you know particularly in this universe knows of the doctor yeah 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 that would make sense that make a lot of sense you know she has to have her fingers in all the pies and she's probably got to know what's going on and then of course i i quite like the concept of liz 10 um played by uh sophie okinido in um the beast below so futuristic version of uh the the monarchy uh, which has gone on um i love that they chose a, an actor of color for for that that was a uh, yes. a lovely a lovely little uh, uh hint considering everything we know about the royals um and of course, the, the the lesser ones that you probably don't know about in sort of classic Who are going to be things like where the Seventh Doctor and Ace um, had to break into Windsor Castle, and they ran into uh, Liz Two, a younger version of her from the eighties. Um, it was a actor who a body double of her who looked very similar was walking with the corgis. Um, I think. Oh shit! In hell, one a massive one from royal lineage that has just completely come back to me. Liz one Elizabeth the first, the doctor's very own wife. 
Of course. Yeah. 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 It's like a really <laughs> it's the big one, one I brought you a building towards. No, no, no. I was going to say this. Well, no, because there were other smaller ones as well. There was like, I think like Richard the First, I'm sure, from the Crusades. And there was a, a robot of King John in, God, what was it? It was one of the Peter Davison ones. It was, it was the master. He built a robot of, of King John at the time. Oh, and of course, there was, what's his face from the Witchfinders? Um, yeah can't remember which king that was but basically there's loads of them but yeah of course elizabeth I, which is a significant character and again in in doctor who history so the doctor's basically had a lot of interaction with the royal family throughout the years hasn't he um and i quite like the playful jab uh at the end regarding the royal family because there, there there's always been jokes and rumors that the royal family are you know uh lizards in skin suits or you know devil worshippers or whatever you know um that there's more to them meets the eye and i like the fact that russell uh uh plays with that just as a fun little joke nothing more just as a fun little joke and um, in those closing moments of the episode i think it's done really well i can confirm that this weekend's jubilee celebrations did not coincide with a full moon well well that's interesting isn't it although she wasn't present for a lot of it but she's 96 but i don't know i guess we'll wait and wait and see what happens wait for the howling um we've spoken about the visuals the score good strong score i quite like the, the the score again the audio mixing didn't i didn't have a problem with it so much this week uh I think but again, I mean, I, I, I noticed the music in a couple of points this episode. I think mm. you're finally starting to wear me down. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, the cold open with the monks as they sort of begin mm. to just stay to our land and start their combat. The music does pick up quite nicely there. Yeah. But also, the, the more iconic one, I think, for this episode is the... Werewolf uh, transformation. Well, well not, not so much the transformation one, but actually that sort of... Um, orchestral music that starts to play as it yeah the crescendo building around yeah 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 it's yeah, going it's... up the stairs down the corridors you know that's very present it is very iconic sort of series applicable era uh maury gold isn't it i think again the, the audio mixing wasn't necessarily the strongest at certain points but apart from that i also did notice there were quite a lot of quiet moments in this particular episode as well which is quite interesting mm-hmm. um considering kind of like the fact that it's been very very kind of bombastic and in your face in most of the stories so far so Let's get to the rating. How many werewolf worshipping monks out of ten would you give this one? Eight. Eight, was that? Yep. Yep, I was going to go for eight as well. Perfect. So we're going to give it eight. So we are going to give Tooth and Claw, Series 2's 2006 Tooth and Claw, we're going to give it eight out of ten. So... Thanks for tuning in. Give us a like and subscribe on our Twitter and Facebook channels. And don't forget to join us next week where we'll be bringing you new reviews and content. But for now, it's a goodbye from us.